The first issue of 20,000 Leagues into Madness is now available on Kindle, Kindle Unlimited, and Comixology. See the story of the podcast rendered in gorgeous detail. Your purchase helps support this podcast. Please rate and review wherever you listen and read. The following episode contains descriptions of violence which may not be suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Mobley Comics Audio presents... 20,000 Leagues into Madness. Created by Brian Del Rio. Based on the works of Jules Verne and H.P. Lovecraft. Chapter 7. My Name is Nobody. Starring Brian Del Rio, Catherine Holt, and Jamie Elena. My breathing heavy, and not just because of the speed at which I am running through the jungle with Thad. The images are seared into my mind. Bartholomew Higginbottom's open back, his ribcage wedged open like a clam, his organs unspooled and hung outside of his trembling, still-living body. Rupert Debney's sleeves and pant legs, soaked crimson as the limbs beneath are disconnected from the old conductor's body. The shining, unblinking eyes of that. That thing. Inhuman shrieks echo through the jungle. I glance over my shoulder. A seething mob of silhouettes pouring through the trees. The blood-red light of the sacrificial bonfire behind them. Dekar, I can't. I can't. Thud's breathing is shallow and erratic, taken between gasping sobs of terror and sorrow. I can feel him slowing, weighing down the hand I hold. Yes, you can. We're going to make it back to that... Oh no. The train. It's leaving. The distant horn sends a chill of mortality up my spine. Goose flesh spreading across my back, neck, and arms. We were minutes from being left alone. In the darkness of night. In the jungle. With them. We're done for. I grit my teeth and squeeze the handle of my unsheathed sword in my other hand stomping down my fear with the same fury at which we ran through the jungle. Damn you! No, we're not. We're nearly there. We can make it. We can't. We can't. It's too far. I hack through a screen of vines as we plunge into knee-deep water. Another blast of the horn inspires both hope and terror. It's not moving. Yet. My arm feels jerked back by Thad's sudden stop. My foot! Dakar! My foot has caught on something. I think it's a root. He struggles to keep his head above water with clawing at his foot, tears running from his eyes onto the algae-covered surface of the water. I freeze at another blast of the train horn, looking from that direction back to Thad. Shadowy figures plunge into the water on the far shore. Their shapes are human but I can see them slithering like eels through the water, bearing down on us with inhuman speed. The sight sends another chill of mortal terror up my spine. I look down at Thad, his face barely poking through the slimy green surface of the water. No, go for it! Mouth spewing water as he frantically gasps for air. Then, abruptly, 
His struggling ceases, and the panic in his eyes turns to calm, to cold acceptance. It's okay. The Lord has prepared a place for me. I chew my lip, my heart twisting in my chest. Before me, a drowning boy in a mob of monsters. Behind me, my quickly dwindling chances of survival. My eyes blur with tears as I step back, as Thad's round, youthful face is slowly enveloped by a film of slimy green algae. A spiny dorsal fin cuts through the film just meters away, bearing down on the boy's helpless position. A lump expands in my throat, my heart wrenching in my chest. Thaddeus Higginbottom draws a calm, final breath, eyes poised confidently at the sky. Look, it's okay. It's okay, It is well with my, my soul. The inhuman monstrosity of spines, gills, and scales bursts from the water. Claws flying toward that space. My sword flashes through the darkness. Removing the creature's head above its jawline. Its tongue skitters as a geyser of blood plumes from the stump of its neck. It may be well with yours, but it's not with mine. I plunge the sword into the water. Searching for the root, holding Thad's foot. I find it, sliding the blade between his ankle and the root, then pulling outward until it snaps. I heave that after the water, shoving him towards the shore. Over my shoulder, I see more spiny dorsal fins cutting through the algae towards us. Go! I'm sure the Lord won't mind if that place he prepared waits a little longer. Seeing the lights of the train car through the trees. They're moving. The blasts of the train horn punctuate the rhythmic, mechanical chuff of the steam engine. It's picking up speed. With a slash of my sword, we burst through the screen of vines, back to the open stretch of dirt and grass we had left earlier that evening. I could see the lanterns in the caboose growing smaller as we finally reached the tracks. No time to catch our breaths. We run after it. I take up the rear behind Thad, hearing the bray of the mob behind us. Thad's fingers strain for the railing. He's not going to make it. He's not going to... He latches onto the railing, his small body slamming against the platform jutting out from the back of the red train car. He scrambles up as I sprint, struggling to maintain my speed. My legs were moments from giving out, and the train was moving faster, faster. Thad slides to one knee, grasping the railing with one hand as he reaches out to me with the other. My arms straight, my fingers brushing against his. Most curled toe of my slipper catched it on the wooden part of the tracks, tripping me. I throw out my hand, my ears ringing with my held breath. 
got you! Using the railing to counterbalance, that eaves me onto the train platform. We collapse side by side on the caboose platform, faces glistening with sweat, chests heaving with our breath, limbs feeling as though the contents within them had turned to jelly. I catch my breath as the mob dwindles into the distance. I return the sword to its sheath, uncaring of the blood which now drips down its gold handle like rubies. Pat sits up beside me, staring into the night, speechless. Suddenly, he throws his arms around my neck, hugging me tightly. I hug him back, tears flowing freely from my eyes now. Oh, Mr. Dempsey, and my dad, Dagger, what were those things? I remain silent a moment, lips pressed tightly together, my mind trying desperately to make sense of what we had just witnessed. The Kanakapuri villagers are masks. It had to be. But they were... My anger is sudden and hot. No! It was dark. We don't know what we saw. We... we... <laughs> the fish-faced humanoid slams into the railing. Skin gray and scaly. Webbed fingers clawing at the metal near our feet. <laughs> that screams as the thing's jaw unhinges. Revealing row after row of thousands of needle-like teeth. Its maw expands like a red tumor. Its throat like a black abyss. A smell like rotted fish fills my nostrils, wetting my eyes with its acidity. The creature's round, unblinking eyes shine with murder as its face flies toward me. I fail to scramble backward quick enough and feel its needle-like teeth pierce the soft flesh on the underside of my jaw. Setting its feet against the edge of the platform, the creature begins pulling slowly back and back and back until my jaw... I sit bolt upright in bed, bare chest heaving with my panicked breaths. I rub sleep-blurred eyes, disoriented by my surroundings. Balls! What the hell happened last night? I grope for my snuff box on the nightstand, fingers knocking a bottle and a splash of emerald liquid on the floor. Absinthe. I growl. I press my fists to the side of my pounding skull. Oh, Dako, Dako, Dako. Why didn't you stick with gin? Well, that certainly explains the nightmare. Now, if only I could remember what I was doing before I passed out. I was, I was in the middle of something. The grandfather clock at the far end of the room, stoic and tall, clears its throat of copper chimes. The sound does nothing for my headache. I struggle to adjust my eyes. A bar of sunlight falls from a gap in the window curtains at the far end of the room illuminating the particles of dust which hang in the air and putting a gash of blinding white light in the floor. 
I squint and grimace until the familiar trappings of mahogany, rosewood, and dark green upholstery come at last into focus. A small flame clings to life within the gaslight above my desk, but it can't even brighten the snifter containing a last gulp of absinthe mere inches beneath it, and leaves the box-shaped device sitting among the mess of bolts and tools draped entirely in shadow. That must have been where my night began. In my fervor to work on my invention, I had left the gaslight running all through the night once again. I wince, thinking about how my old governess, Agnes Pohl, would have switched my knuckles had I wasted oil like that on her watch. I rub my hands and hiss, recalling the sting of her switch. Turned out, it was the last thing she did. I was 14 when a red-faced Mrs. Pole succumbed to a heart attack mid-scolding. To her credit, most Englishmen now praise my command of the language. But I won't lie and say I wasn't relieved the day the morticians hauled off the abusive woman's bloated, red-faced corpse. I knew I shouldn't grin at the thought of anyone's demise, but... The grin falters. The dream. The awful image of Bartholomew Higginbottom and Rupert Debney's mangled corpses in a pile by that heathen bonfire. I wipe a thick dollop of sweat from my brow and run a shaky hand through my hair. The sheets piled on my lap and feet are damp with perspiration. I kick them off the bed hearing a heavy book thud as it hits the floor with the bundled sheets. The book had fallen on its face. I stretch out a foot, turning it over between my toes. I squint down at the title. The Odyssey, by the ancient Greek poet Homer, translated into English by William Sotheby. All right, some of it was coming back to me now. The Odyssey, Homer's epic tale of a Greek general trying to get back to his home after the Trojan War. I had read it before, of course, under the tutelage of the much kinder governess who'd followed Mrs. Pole, Mary Swinford. Let's see. In the last passage I could recall, it was the part where Odysseus and his crew had anchored near an island to replenish their provisions, and they get captured by the man-eating Cyclops... Polyphemus. Right. And then the Cyclops ate two of Odysseus's men. I rubbed the back of my neck. Well, that certainly accounted for at least some of the reason I had dreamed of a half-human horror treating my face like a dish of beef wellington. But not everything that occurred in the dream was explained by an overactive imagination inflamed by the ancient tales of gods and monsters. I rubbed my thickly bearded jaw, as if to make sure it was still there. No, a fish person hadn't mauled my face after Thaddeus and I made it back to the train. But everything before that? Thad's father? Rupert? 
I shudder. I hadn't dreamed about that horrific night in... in years. When was the last time? My mind drifts like a ribbon of smoke back to the days I'd first arrived in London. The sky had been a slate of grey as my ship steamed through the stinking brown water of the Thames River. Smokestacks belched pollution into a horrid black cloud which hung above the city south of the river. I can remember being frightened by the sight of it, the cloud looming like a gigantic monster above the cluster of flats and factories. <laughs> But the rough brown and gray ugliness of the docks soon gave way to the manicured green trees and tall stately homes of Kensington. I remember stepping out of the coach onto the wet cobbles of 1513 Luke Street, hugging a suitcase to my chest in trepidation as I peered up at the building which was to be my accommodation for the next six years. I could recall being startled by the clang of the gate to the courtyard behind us. The gate with the sign which announced that the property had belonged to the venerable East India Company since 1791. In writing, I was not able to read at the time. The building's gothic architecture had seemed so tall and intimidating when I first arrived. And the room Mrs. Pole had shown me to... or lonesome. It took me a while to think of this place, of Prodigue Manor, as home. After just two nights of waking in a fit of screams, Mrs. Pole had begun forcing spoonfuls of laudanum down my throat before bed. A reddish-brown tincture whose bitterness was so extreme, its mere memory could induce me to gag. But that didn't stop the nightmares. Nor did Mrs. Pole's scolding, or the sting of her switch nor the monotone recitations of Vicar Cunningham as he sat by my bedside with an open Bible. There was only one thing that could quiet the dreams. One thing that had eventually, mercifully, allowed me to move on, to forget. bed and bend over to pick up the book from the floor, walking to place it back in the bookcase across the room, my bare feet slapping against the checkered tiles. My fingers glide over thick spines with gold letters, Timaeus by Plato, On the Nature of Elements by Cornelius Drebbel, Mathematical Magic by the Bishop John Wilkins. Where to put Homer? Let's see. Ah, there we go. Right beside... Beside... Beside Nazib's book. I stretch a hand toward the old tome, but hesitate. Fingers hovering for its spine of cracked brown leather. I retract my hand and quickly shove Homer's book in beside it, turning from the bookcase, my heart pounding. You're not going to read it, Dakar. Why do you keep it? 
It hasn't left this shelf since you put it there on the day you first arrived. Donate it to a library. Give it away. Hell, throw it in the Thames. No. I sigh, thinking of my brother, and feel a pang of guilt. I still hadn't had the courage to send the letter to my mother, offering my condolences on his sudden passing. And more importantly, communicating my intentions to remain in London indefinitely. The board had granted me special permission to cede my rule of Bundlekind. Is that how I really said it now? Bundalekind. Of Bundlekind to her, and let her rule by proxy. A technicality when it came to the doctrine of lapse, seeing as how a capable male heir to Bundlekind still lived. Mother was more fit to rule than I'd ever be anyway. She was practically ruling now, since father's stroke. Another pang of guilt. Father. It all just felt so far away, my old life in India. I turned from the bookcase and crossed the room, pulling up a pair of trousers. I slip on a white collared shirt, throwing on an embroidered red waistcoat before I'd even buttoned it up. As I button the plain white shirt, I think about the collection of brightly colored kurtas I had grown out of years earlier. When had I last worn a turban? Was it the day Mrs. Pole had had the barber forcibly cut my hair? The day Vicar Cunningham had splashed my head with water and made me repeat something about renouncing my sins? They told me I was a Christian now, that God lived inside me. I told them I thought God lived in everyone, in everything. Mrs. Pole and Vicar Cunningham didn't like that. I didn't feel Christian, so I kept putting on my turban every morning, for years. I don't remember when it happened, the day I grabbed the black bowler cap instead. Was I still Sikh? I honestly hadn't thought about it. There had been so many other subjects to focus on here, so many activities. In the whirlwind of exhilaration that was my life in London, the mountains of written knowledge I'd poured over in the wee hours of the night, the thrill of soaring through the clouds in an airship, <laughs> or gliding down the streets of London on a bicycle, the delicious taste of cigar smoke, or the pleasant burn of gin, the euphoric rush of the new wonder drug, cocaine. The intoxicating perfume of English women. The religion of my parents seemed so... so quaint now. I mean, what did we really know about the world and the small kingdom of Bundlecand? I had been ignorant of so much then. Now I knew. The superstitious boy had become a civilized man. And a civilized man was... I finally noticed them when I was trying to button the cuffs of the shirt on my wrists. The leather cuffs with dangling metal rings on my wrists. And at last, I remember what happened last night, right as Helene sidles up behind me, twisting my arm behind my back as she slides a switch across my throat. The aroma of her perfume. Rose petals. A fitting scent for a woman with both beauty and 
and sting. She nibbles my lobe, her breath hot in my ear. Mr. Talwar Singh, I thought I had trained you to be a good boy, but it seems you need another lecture this morning. Were you really planning on slipping out while I was in the shower? The corner of my mouth quirks in a grin. My apologies, Helene. Miss Birch. She corrected. I rubbed the seat of my pants, still smiling. I forgot your visits to Prodigue Manor are the only chance you get to experience the wonder of indoor plumbing. Are you giving me lip, young man? I chuckled, knowing she was just a year older than me. I turn quickly, seizing her hips and pulling her close to me. She looks up at me with eyes as blue-green as the sea. My mouth hovers over hers. Only if you'll allow it, Miss Birch. Her lips twitch in a smile. I'll allow it, Dakar. I pull back pushing a curl of blonde hair out of her blushing face as she bites her lip and giggles. I don't normally allow clients to do that, you know. Is that all I am to you, Helene? A client? I cup her small hands in mine. I could be more, you know. Psh! Oh, please. She sneers, proceeding to unlock the leather cuffs around my wrists. Like you'd ever cross the river. Leave your indoor plumbing and perfectly manicured trees to slum it with me in Bermondsey. God, even your air is more breathable here. It all hangs in the air where I live. It can't be that bad. She squints at me in disbelief. And I can't tell if she's amused or insulted. You've never left the nice parts of London before, have you? I toured a factory in Lambeth once. I wanted to see how an engine worked. During working hours? Hmm? No, it was a new factory. The workers wouldn't be on site until the next day. Helene nods. Hmm. All right, Dakar. I'll let you take me on a proper date. She shrugs and turns from me. You ever been to a seance before? A what? A seance. Speaking to the dead. You're posh enough to go foul-shooting every day, but you don't know about the latest craze in London high society. Oh, is this something to do with spiritualism, ghosts and the like? I roll my eyes. And you can afford such entertainment in Bermondsey? Of course not. That's why I want to go. The Esoteric Order of Dagon. They have a chapter in our neighbourhood. Their leader, Algernon Dunwich. Dunwich, Dunwich. I think I've heard of him. Dunwich put up some flyers, offering to perform a free seance for anyone from Bermondsey who wanted to go. I stroke my beard a moment, before flashing her a smile. All right, I'll accompany you. I glance over at the box-shaped device on my desk, sitting among the mess of bolts and tools. I should be done presenting my invention to Monsieur Bourgeois by then. Her smile outshines the bar of sunlight cutting through the room. Great! I'll write down the time and address. She crosses the room to my desk, pulling a slip of paper from my typewriter. And my steel-point pen from the inkwell. She speaks to me as she writes, her tone casual. 
I always wanted to scream at Odysseus. Excuse me? At that part in the Odyssey, when Odysseus calls out to the Cyclops to brag as he and his men are escaping. You were reading it aloud to me as we fell asleep. My dad read it to me years ago. His translation was in Latin, of course, being an academic and archaeologist and all. I tilt my head, lifting an eyebrow. I had no idea. Well, it certainly explains how articulate and intelligent you are. But if... I press my lips together, not wishing to sour her mood with a question that had an obviously unfortunate answer. He passed, if that's what you're wondering. There's no climbing up the social ladder in British society, but you can certainly fall down it. I think of the caste system practiced by the Hindus in India, and wonder if British society truly was all that superior after all. Sounds like a fascinating man. I wish I could have known him. She smiles to herself. He would have enjoyed knowing you, actually. An Indian intellectual with a love of Greek myth and history. The focus of his studies were on Yavanus, an Indo-Greek kingdom in the northern regions of your homeland. I blink in surprise. Wait, there were Greeks in India? Hmm, back to the time of Alexander the Great. They mixed with the Indians, even. My dad kept an extensive journal with notes on his research. I would like to see that. Helene shrugs. Sure. It hasn't been doing anything in the suitcase I've kept it in for the last ten years. And he never got a chance to publish his findings. I'm sure Dad would have liked someone with an education to read his work. I'll bring it tonight. I smile. Now, what were you saying about wanting to scream at Odysseus? She smiles as she keeps writing. Odysseus should have known what any street urchin in Bermondsey knows. It's never good for anyone powerful to know your name. Cops and gang leaders can't nab you if they don't know who to inquire after and Poseidon wouldn't have known the name of the man who blinded his one-eyed son if Odysseus had just stuck with his alias. It just makes me want to scream at him, knowing that one moment is what causes his return home to be frustrated by Poseidon, that a voyage of a few months ends up costing him twenty years. Helene sighs, shaking her head. But I suppose we wouldn't have a tale to tell without Odysseus having the hamartia of arrogance. The what? Helene looks up from the letter with a grin of amusement. Hamartia? Have you not gotten around to reading Aristotle yet? I smile back. Are you about to give me another of your famous lectures, Miss Birch? She takes on an imperious air. Are you not taking notes, young man? She laughs. In Greek tragedy, hamartia is the fatal flaw, the thing that brings about the hero's downfall or demise. For Odysseus, it's hubris, his arrogance. While his admirable quality, the thing that makes him a hero, is phronesis, cleverness, craftiness, intelligence, best demonstrated in his devising of the Trojan horse to end the war. 
Helene places the pen back in the inkwell, folding the paper. I shake my head and chuckle as she crosses the room to me. <laughs> You'd think someone clever could have been more creative in coming up with a false name to give the Cyclops. My name is nobody, he says. All that cleverness with the Trojan horse and that's the best he could come up with? How did the Cyclops not see right through the trick? My name is nobody. It's not even a real name. She hands me the folded paper. Fanny, when my dad would read it in Latin, the word nobody actually sort of sounded like a name. Helene turns and walks away, making her way toward where her dresses were piled in the corner. Oh? What was that? She turns back to me, her freckled cheeks dimpling with her smile. Nemo. The sensuous and intelligent Helene Birch is voiced by Catherine Halt. Catherine writes gothic historical fiction set in the Victorian era. You can support her work at misshwrites.co.uk. Mobley Comics Audio.